let us worship God. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee that Thou who art Lord of heaven and earth, maker of all things visible and invisible, hast in thy mercy chosen to dwell with us. Thou hast promised that where two or three are gathered together in thy name, thou art there in their midst. Then welcome, O Lord. Bless us by thy Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to understand better thy word and to rejoice therein. And to know that greater is he that is in us and with us than he that is in the world. We thank thee that thou art he who rules and overrules whose all-wise and all-provident purposes shall prevail. Our God, we thank thee. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs> Our scripture is Numbers 18, verses 8 through 19. Our subject, priests and people. Numbers 18, 8 through 19, Priests and People. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, Behold, I have given thee the charge of mine heave offerings of all the hallowed things of the children of Israel. Unto thee have I given them by reason of the anointing, and to thy sons by an ordinance forever. This shall be thine of the most holy things, reserved from the fire. Every oblation of theirs, every meat offering of theirs, and every sin offering of theirs, and every trespass offering of theirs, which they shall render unto me, shall be most holy for thee and for thy sons. In the most holy place shalt thou eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy unto thee. And this is thine inheritance, the heave offering of their gift, with all the wave offerings of the children of Israel. I have given them unto thee, and to thy sons, and to thy daughters with thee, by a statute forever. Every one that is clean in thy house shall eat of it, all the best of the oil, and all the best of the wine, and of the wheat, the firstfruits of them which they shall offer unto the Lord, them have I given thee. And whatsoever is first ripe in the land, which they shall bring unto the Lord, shall be thine. Every one that is clean in thine house shall eat of it. Everything devoted in Israel shall be thine. Everything that openeth the matrix in all flesh, which they bring unto the Lord, whether it be of men or beasts, shall be thine. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man shalt thou surely redeem, and the firstling of unclean beasts shalt thou redeem. And those that are to be redeemed from a month old shalt thou redeem according to thine estimation, 
for the money of five shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty giras. But the firstling of a cow, or the firstling, or the firstling of a sheep, or the firstling of a goat, thou shalt not redeem. They are holy. Thou shalt sprinkle their blood upon the altar, and shalt burn their fat for an offering made by fire for a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the flesh of them shall be thine, as the wave breast and as the right shoulder are thine. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer unto the Lord have I given thee, and thy sons and thy daughters with thee, by a statute forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord unto thee and thy seed with thee. God often repeats himself, even as we do, with unruly children. He knows our habit of listening closely to what is favorable to us, and then having a sudden attack of deafness if our desires and views are contradicted. We had better listen carefully to what this chapter has to say. This same material is in substance repeated before and after. Later in Deuteronomy 18, 1 to 8, and in Ezekiel 44, 28 through 31. And it appears earlier in Leviticus 6, 16 to 18, and Leviticus 7, 6 to 9, and 31 to 33, as well as elsewhere. In verse 8, God says, I have given thee the charge of various offerings, which can be translated, I have given thee what is reserved from the altar of the contributions made to me, even all the sacred gifts. In other words, certain things which belong only to God are reserved for the priests. First, there were portions of the sacrificial animals other than the whole offering and the shared offering, which was eaten in a shared communion meal. These went to the priests. Second, the oil, wine, and first fruits were given to the priests for their use. Third, the firstborn of animals and men, male firstborns, were to be redeemed by the believer and a payment made. Fourth, these things that were for priestly consumption were to be shared with his family, but not with a married daughter who was no longer in the same household. Fifth, in verse 19, this is called a covenant of salt, an expression we find also in Second Chronicles 18, 13, uh, verse 5. Because salt was used to preserve foods, a covenant of salt meant an enduring covenant. Now, St. Paul refers to this chapter when he cites the fact that although it was his right to do so, he had never charged the church for his travel or for his support. In 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14, he says, Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar, even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel shall live of the gospel. 
the priest could take only certain specified things. Now, this meant that in times of faith they were well provided for as worshippers brought in their sacrifices and firstfruits. At other times they were no doubt near starvation. This meant that it was a temptation in times of waning faith for the priests to give the people the kind of religion they wanted. They were thus open to temptation. Now this is an important fact. Historically it is very important. It says that in a time of faith those who serve the Lord are going to prosper. When there is no faith they're going to be starving. And the people will get what God then meets out to them. I said this is an important fact historically. Nothing has been written, only incidental references to the history of this fact in the history of Western Europe in the modern age. We had state churches. This meant that everywhere the clergy, whether Catholic or Protestant, were dependent on the state. In old Russia, for example, while the state chose to build magnificent cathedrals and churches, the priests were barely given enough to live. And because they would have left in order to find gainful employment, they were compelled to remain in the priesthood and their sons had to succeed them by law or go to prison. That's the only way they maintained the church. They starved the clergy. Now, this only ended in the latter days of the Tsars, but by that time it was too late. They had a broken clergy. There was a state church in Lutheran Germany, again treated the same way. And what was the result? They were so abjectly humiliated by the state that they could not marry without the permission of the local prince who gave them his cast-off mistresses. That was his way of getting rid of unwanted women. The Gallican Church, the state-controlled Catholic Church of France, did the same thing. In fact, there and elsewhere, the use of the Magnificat, a part of the liturgy, in Lutheranism and Catholicism and other churches, was forbidden because the Magnificat said of our Lord Jesus Christ that he came to put down the mighty from their seats and to exalt them that are of low estate. In England, the same thing prevailed. And the only reason why it was saved from a revolution was because there was enough freedom of religion to prevent, uh, to permit the possibility 
of the Wesleyan revival and then the evangelical revival at the beginning of the last century. So there is a correlation between obedience to God's required support of his servants and as we shall see in a couple weeks of his scholars and what happens to a country. There is nowhere in the Bible any guarantee against sin, nor any ground for believing that a good and safe society can be established apart from God and his law word. There were other things that the priests could receive. A tenth of the tithe paid to the Levites was to be paid to the priests, according to Numbers 18.26. This was the tie that provided for instruction for scholarship. But again, it depended on whether the people paid the tie. For there was no living offended person to whom restitution could be made. It was to be made to the priests, according to Numbers 5, 6 through 8. The priests could also eat the bread set before the Lord, and they received the hide of burnt offerings. According to Marsing, the ultimate pleasure of all these offerings was to ensure the good pleasure of the Lord. To eat of them was to have a share in this great benefit. And faithfulness to God leads to an ever-widening circle of benefit. His priests, his clergy, and his scholars are blessed by the people. The benefits move outward. A difference is made between the priests' portions. First, in verses 9 and 10, we are told that the cereal offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering portions were most holy and could be eaten only by the priests within the sanctuary. Second, the other group of offerings could be eaten by any clean member of the priest's immediate family, according to verses 11 and 19. Now, there is an important aspect to these rules. The priests are required or were required to be faithful to God. At every point, like the Levites, They had a carefully circumscribed part in God's realm. We can say that everyone has such a place strictly under God's government and law. At the same time, the priests and also the Levites were dependent on the people for their living. It was therefore very easy for them to be unduly swayed by the people. They could be very prone, and we can all think of clergymen today who are so, to giving the people what they want and prospering in that way. The greater, however, the responsibilities God gives us, the greater our exposure to temptation, attacks, and liabilities, and to his judgment. 
people prefer to live their lives without any reminder of their duties to God and his servants. In God's providence, maximum responsibilities and privileges mean maximum exposure and hostilities. In the modern age, the age of the state, the goal has been to make responsibility faceless by means of bureaucracies, committees, and group decisions. Not surprisingly, we are thereby especially vulnerable to corruption on a massive scale. I can recall being at a meeting, it was in the late 40s or early 50s, and I was invited on the strength of an article I wrote on welfareism, which was reprinted in papers from coast to coast. They were important men, industrialists. And one of the things I remember vividly from that meeting was that the foundations they had created were all going to be destroyed. How? Because the ruling step by step was going to lead to something which was finally accomplished within 20 years thereafter. No man could control a foundation. He had to have a committee. In time, that committee had to be governed by people neither employed by him nor related to him, which meant he would lose control. And the foundation would become faceless, just as state bureaucracies are faceless. Group decisions and committees are the order of the day. Not surprisingly, we are thereby especially vulnerable to corruption on a massive scale. This situation, whereby God's servants are required to be strictly faithful to him, while materially dependent on the people, is of God's devising. It requires a strong and courageous clergy and clerisy, one capable of withstanding the voice of the people. The voice of the people is not the voice of God. Only the voice of God is the voice of God. The premise of the gifts brought to the sanctuary is that all increase of every kind belongs to God. This must be acknowledged by the presentation of, at the shrine of the first fruits and the first that is born. They are not given to God, but presented, since they are already God's. Not only the gift, but the giver belongs to God. And the presentation of the first fruits and the gifts and the tithes requires 
the surrender of ourselves to the triune God. The plain meaning of this chapter militates against the notion that the service, the true service of God, is easy. We are required to be dependent upon God while materially dependent upon the people. This means that God's clergy and clerisy must seek faithfulness rather than material success. It means that courage is required. It means standing up to the people. It means going against the current in our time of democracy and insisting on God's rule, not man's. The modern state hides its evils in a vast bureaucracy and endless rules and regulations which make for anonymity. And this was the downfall of the church in the Middle Ages and in the modern era. We forget, because it's being dropped out of the history books, that for centuries one of the three great popes was regarded as the infamous Borgia Alexander. Why? because he was an able administrator who created the papal bureaucracy which is still in place. Only with the embarrassment created by modern historians, as they have told more plainly the facts about that Borgia Pope, has he been quietly forgotten as one of the three great popes. But the bureaucracy continues in the Vatican, and it continues in every Protestant church. It's created as soon as a new church is created. One sizable church that broke away after World War II already has a considerable bureaucracy. The anonymity of cowardice now surrounds us. And all too many men are silent. We do not advance in history by means of any bureaucracy or any natural force or any pendulum, but only by faith and moral courage as individual men manifest it. And this is the great need of our time. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word. And we thank Thee that Thy Word speaks to our needs. We know, O Lord, that men hide from Thy Word. They relegate it to oblivion or to past generations and dispensations and they refuse 
to acknowledge thy truth. O Lord, our God, make us receptive. By thy Holy Spirit, open our hearts to know, to hear, to obey, to know that whether or not we obey thee, thy will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it will be either done against us and to our judgment or for our blessing. In Christ's name, Amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. You spoke of the repetitions that certain commands uh, enjoy throughout Scripture. We're, we're living in an age apparently where we build doctrines around one Scripture, ignore commands that are repeated many, many times throughout Scripture. Uh, when we what? We build doctrines around single Scriptures, like a millennium or something. Oh, yes. Uh, repeated many, many times, we don't pay any attention to That's right. And, uh, we forget something that is basic not only to the Bible, but to uh, teaching as it once existed. Repetition, drill, line upon line, precept upon precept. And of course, that is something that in some of our... Uh, Modern music is missing the thematic element. And without the thematic element, it loses its meaning. It becomes mindless. Yes? A bureaucracy began as an improvement because it systematized effort. And the problem is that its strength became its weakness because as it increased, its efficiency declines. The Soviets have got a problem with 15 million bureaucrats calling themselves the Communist Party. Yes. Uh, King John, whom we knew as boys as the bad king, is now regarded as a great king because he started the English bureaucracy. <laughs> the trouble with bureaucracy is that it becomes faceless. Now, uh, when a bureaucracy around a ruler had a face, it was incorruptible. It is interesting that uh, the one who preserved Queen Elizabeth's throne, Walsingham, has never had a biography. Others around her have had. 
But Walsingham, unlike all the others, was incorruptible. He lived and died a poor man. His widow and family were near starvation because she did not pay, except rarely. And he served faithfully. He stood out. He never sought anonymity, and he never courted publicity. But he was rigorously honest, preserved Queen Elizabeth, and to this day there is not a single thing written about him in a, no biography that I know of. Yes. Yes. She hated him. He was rigorously honest. He was a Puritan also. And yet she knew she needed him. She could not do without him. But a faceless bureaucracy is the order of the day. Now, the single regulation issued by a single agency of our government, including the White House, has got the name of the author with it. That's right. And I shall never recall call about, oh, 20 years ago when I spoke to a group in Washington, D.C. Uh, one of the listeners was a man from the IRS. He indicated that his my materials, the Calcedon Report, came across his desk regularly. But he said, I did not understand the nature of the IRS and other federal bureaucracies, that they prefer anonymity. And he said, you cannot understand what it is all about unless you recognize that everything we do by our own desire as well as the intent of any agency is faceless and impersonal. <laughs> yes. One that uh, law that comes to mind is the Graham Rudman Hollings law, which they all scrambled to get their name on, and then immediately repudiated right after the election. Uh, it was meant purely to uh, make people think that the government was going to balance the budget, when in fact they they knew that it was impossible to do. Yes. Well, that kind of thing has happened. Uh, there, I read a book recently which gives several similar instances. Yes, Martin. You spoke of uh, clergy being kept penniless, sometimes by state design. Is there any relationship between that and the vow of poverty? And the what? Vow of poverty. Between that and the vow of poverty. Uh, no, because... The vow of poverty was taken by certain orders, whether in uh, Catholic countries or in old Russia. And uh, this was the regular clergy that was uh, kept in poverty because they had the ear of the people every week and during the week. 
we must remember daily masses in some countries and a variety of services in Lutheran churches and in Russian Orthodox churches. So by keeping them in poverty, they kept them subservient. They broke their will. It's an aspect of modern history that we uh, do not know. The uh, captivity of the Russian church began with Peter the Great. The old believers broke, and they were independent, and they were the capitalist class of old Russia. They were the great sources of charity. What they did was very, very remarkable. And they were growing by leaps and bounds, and they were crushed by legislation in the latter years of last century. And in bitterness, they turned and supported the enemies of the regime, unfortunately, and helped create the revolution. But the old believers are still there We've heard nothing of late of them, but uh, Solzhenitsyn apparently was very close to them and may have been one of them. We don't know. He's never spoken of it except he has very favorable things to say about them. Yes? A heave offering was uh, an offering that was taken to the altar and it was uh, heaved or waved before the Lord like this, like that. So a sign of the cross was made as it was presented before God, which is a very interesting fact that people uh, don't deal with, either Christians or Jews ironically, but uh, it was given to God first to indicate it was his and we together with him belong to him. Any other questions or comments? If not, let us close with prayer. Our Father, it is good for us to be here, for thy word is truth. Thy word speaks to our every need and to all the burdens and problems of this world, to its sins and to its hopes. Bless us by thy word and by thy spirit and make us faithful. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.